Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock once said that the length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human bladder, which means I should be watching very short films. Very short films. Today, I'm joined by a guest who has ideas for helping us make it through long movies and life with better bladder health. Dr. Angelish Kumar is a board-certified urologist and a certified menopause practitioner. If you have overactive bladder, leakage, painful sex, and a fear of organ prolapse, do not go anywhere. This show is for you. Welcome, Angelish. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. I am really excited to be talking all things bladder and vaginal health with you because this is like front and center for me and so many women. But before we dive in, I'm curious. I want to know how you um, started off in this field because when I went in search of a female urologist to talk to, I learned from Google that only 8% of urologists are actually women. So how did you wind up in this field? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was in medical school um, and I was doing my rotations um, as a third year medical student. And, you know, you kind of are in love with every field and every, you know, area you rotate through, you go, oh, I want to do this. Um, And so when I did my surgery rotation, um, I remember my first week was actually vascular surgery and I was in these really cool, um, like carotid artery operations and they were fixing these like abdominal aortic aneurysms. Um, and it was very intense and, you know, we would be in the operating room for eight hours and the time would just fly by. Um, and so I, I knew that I definitely wanted to go into a surgical field. Um, and, and then it turned out that my next rotation was, um, was urology and uh, when I when I was um, you know spending time with the urologist, I really found a group of people who um, were great doctors, who were really nice people, um, who also were doing really fascinating surgeries, um, and had this whole range of different um, types of procedures that they could do from. Um, open surgeries to uh, laparoscopic or robotic surgeries to um, endoscopic surgeries like for kidney stones. Um, And so I knew that um, it was a great field and that, you know, I would definitely find a lot of uh, fun things to do. (laughs) I'm I'm amazed by all of these different options because when I when I think of urology, I don't I don't even really think of surgery, but that actually makes that makes total sense. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, it is a surgical field um, and there are such a broad range of the types of surgeries. I think most people think about, you know, prostate cancer um, and kidney stones um, and, and circumcisions. Um, but, you know, we, we do surgeries for things like incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, um, like you mentioned, um, as well as, you know, lots of different types of procedures um, for the bladder. Um, and so there's there's so many different things that you can do in urology. So what are the what are the top reasons that somebody would come to you? Is it for surgery or do you what's a more sort of common complaint you might hear from women in midlife? So I've actually focused um, my entire practice on <laughs> women in midlife. <laughs> Good, because we need your help. I have so many <laughs> urologic problems. Um, but um, but. Yeah, so I I think the things I'm seeing most of are um, stress incontinence, uh, which is uh, leakage when when you cough, laugh, or sneeze. Um, A lot of women 
find that they can't exercise uh, because they leak urine when they exercise. And, you know, it's, it's actually extremely common um, after pregnancy and childbirth. About one third of women um, suffer from stress incontinence. Um, I see a lot of uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, that is also a very sort of distressing problem that um, many women can have throughout their lives. Um, and for some women, it starts happening around uh, midlife uh, because it can start happening around the time of perimenopause. Um, and so uh, that's certainly a big one, especially during the pandemic where, you know, it's a problem that you can't put off. Uh, you really need to um, um, be seen and, and get it taken care of and, and do all of the uh, sort of preventive things you need to be doing um, so that you don't continue to need antibiotics. Um, and, um, I see a lot of overactive bladder, uh, as we discussed, uh, when you, you, you need that, uh, seat close to the bathroom and, um, you know, you're, you're running out of the movie theater, um, because two hours is just too long for you to hold it. Um, and so that's a very common problem, uh, with urinary urgency frequency. Um, some women actually do leak, um, before they reach the toilet, which is a very distressing, um, problem to have. Um, and something that, you know, we can certainly help out with. Um, and then I also see a lot of something called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, uh, which is sort of a, a, a constellation of symptoms where there's urinary urgency, frequency, kind of, you kind of feel like you have a UTI, but then you get your urine tested and you don't, maybe some burning with urination, vaginal irritation, this just general awareness of the whole area. Um, and that happens in women uh, usually after menopause, um, and it goes extremely under-recognized um, and under-treated. So I'm very vigilant about um, recognizing that and treating it. That sounds like a combination of those top three, because you talked about stress incontinence, UTIs, and overactive bladder. And that fourth thing you gave me is like, you know, all that in a bag of chips. It's like rolled it together. That's, that, that doesn't seem fair. So let's start with stress incontinence, because when you talked about how women sometimes experience leakage during exercise, I immediately flashed to a good friend of mine from college who used to absolutely adore running. And then I remember seeing her at one point and saying, you know, why aren't you doing that any longer? And she shared it was because that she was like, you know, having to go to the bathroom or leaking urine each time. And and neither one of us like knew that there was something you could be doing about it. So how do you tackle stress and incontinence in your female patients? So um, the first line of therapy is usually to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, and many women are are told, you know, they're sort of told, oh, you know, make sure you do your Kegels. Um, and, you know, actually, uh, the, the data shows unequivocally that when women are just sort of told to go home and do Kegels, um, it's typically not as effective as when they go and actually see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, and so, you know, definitely the first um, line of management is to do pelvic floor physical therapy with a pelvic floor physical therapist. I usually recommend um, once a week for six weeks and then once you've done that, um, then you can start doing the exercises at home. Um, in my practice, a lot of women um, have already done that um, or they, you know, they found that it was effective for sort of the period of time they were doing it. Um, and then, you know, some months went by and they were leaking again and they wanted something that was just a little more um, definitive. Um, and then, you know, you get into um, procedures where 
we have a couple of procedures that are very effective um, for stress incontinence. Uh, one is an injection uh, that we do in the urethra with a, a water-based gel, um, mm. and it basically helps the urethra form a tighter seal. So if you can imagine like when you go to the dermatologist and you have um, fillers done for your wrinkles um, to sort of plump up the tissue, um, we can do the same thing on the inside of the urethra where we're sort of plumping it up so that it, it is closing more tightly and um, it prevents you from leaking. That's um, so cool. I've never heard of it. Wait, is this like the Botox for bladder or is that something different? Because I've seen that on websites. <laughs> Yeah, so good question. So Botox is actually for overactive bladder. Okay. Um, we do do Botox injections in the bladder, but that's not for stress incontinence. Um, that is for overactive bladder. Um, this agent is called Bulkamid. Um, and it's great because, you know, it's a, it's a simple office procedure. It works immediately. There's no, you know, downtime as far as having surgery. Um, and it's about it's, it's effective in about 80% of women. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very effective uh, for a procedure that is so minimally invasive. It's, and um, how long does that last for? Because that sounds fabulous. So it's interesting because it's the first, we, we call um, those types of injections in the urethra, we call them urethral bulking agent injections. And um, it's the first bulking agent that actually has good data up to five to seven years um, out. Um, and so uh, in about 75% of the patients who do well with the initial injection, uh, the they are able to maintain those results five to seven years out. Um, but we don't have longer term data than that. So past that, I can't say. Um, but you know, I, it works pretty well. And it does tend to last. And I think for people who end up needing another injection, um, because it's not a surgery, you don't have to go to the hospital, you don't have to have anesthesia, you just have to come into the office. Um, it's, it's not such a big deal to, to get, you know, a top-up injection if you need that. Um, and then, you know, for, for patients um, who have more severe stress incontinence, uh, we have a surgical procedure, which is called a sling. And that's where we basically place either a piece of your own native tissue or a piece of mesh underneath the urethra um, to basically help restore the support of the urethra. And that also is extremely effective. Um, it works very, it, you know, it works well, but it's a surgery. Um, and so, you know, you do have to have anesthesia. Um, it's typically done in a hospital or in an ambulatory surgery center. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the risks of having surgery are a little bit higher. Um, and there is a recovery period. And I think for a lot of women, that recovery is very... Um, you know, it's, it's a big deal because there's like no heavy lifting and nothing in the vagina and that's impractical for, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you want to have fun or do other things, but I'm curious. So like, no, um, I just mean like, you know, if you're, if you're getting your period and you wear a tampon, then, gotcha. you, you know, for the period, the, the time of recovery, you, um, you know, you'd have to wear a pad if, you know, if you have a four-year-old and you're told, oh, you can't lift your, you know, four-year-old for six weeks. Um, it, it's a big deal to have that recovery. And so, you know, that surgery works really well, but, um, but it is a surgery. Sure. So you, you'd said that this is something for, for, you know, candidates for this or people who aren't maybe, uh, having effective treatment from the bulking or from the pelvic floor therapist. So how many women 
so this is not for people who are just having like I sneeze and I leak urine. Like you're defining yeah. like who's the right candidate for this. Um. So women who um. It, you know, it depends how often you leak when you sneeze. So you have some women who say, you know, I'm wearing three panty liners a day. Um, because if I sneeze, if I laugh, if I run to catch the bus or the train, I leak, my pad is wet. Um, and so those women, you definitely, you know, if they've done pelvic floor physical therapy and it's not helping, um, you know, then you definitely want to consider, you know, doing a procedure like a bulking agent or a sling. Um, if you have a, a woman who says, you know, I leak once a month, um, if I jump on a trampoline with my kids, um, then that's someone who I think can be managed more conservatively. And, you know, the, the slings are slightly more effective than the bulking agents. So if you have a patient who's, um, you know, who says, you know, I want to be, um, substantially improved, um, you know, the bulking agent is going to work well. But if you have a patient who is, you know, I, I, I want to do the most definitive thing. I want to be, you know, a, I, I want, want to be on a trampoline. Completely I want dry <laughs> and I'm willing to have surgery. Um, then, you know, then I think a sling is a better option. Okay. So that's for people who really like are committed to their trampoline activities. This right. is, this is so <laughs> fascinating. Okay. We're going to come back in a minute and discuss UTIs, but first we're going to take a quick break. Menopause is inevitable, but the symptoms that accompany it don't have to be. Meet Kendra, the company that will make your peri to post menopause journey smoother. Kendra has an amazing online quiz, which helps identify where you are in your menopause transition. I so love this customization because my experience with menopause looks different from some of my friends. On the very first episode of A Certain Age, I shared that I never had a hot flash, but I did experience bouts of what doctors call mood instability, what actually felt more like waves of toxic rage. All through April, A Certain Age is exploring the theme of out loud, and having candid conversations that no one talks about. Menopause, rage, and dry vagina should probably top that list. I've been taking Kindra's scientifically formulated estrogen-free supplements, and they are helping my sleep, mood shifts, and energy. They also have a daily vaginal lotion for dryness, which people rave about. Kindra's products target all of those frustrating signs of menopause that get in the way of vibrant living. Kindra has a great offer for a certain age listeners. Any first-time purchasers or subscribers get 20% off anything. Use code KD20 at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E-2-0. Head to ourkindra.com for wellness that works. Okay, so we've discussed stress incontinence and some of the sort of the three different options. I want to dive into UTIs because I know this is something that has plagued me in the past and I'm being selfish. I've got you here and I want to, you know, have you help. <laughs> I want you to help me figure out how to make make sure these things, uh, you know, go away and don't come back. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that a lot of our listening audience has also struggled with these. So how can you help us? Well, so with urinary tract infections, um, a lot of uh, the, the history matters. So it matters, you know, are you getting them after sexual activity? Um, are you um, on the birth control pill? Are you postmenopausal? Um, you know, you have to sort of take into consideration different risk factors. So for women who are postmenopausal, 
Um, the lack of estrogen in the vagina uh, contributes a lot to uh, why it's very easy to get urinary tract infections. The, the bacteria actually come from the GI tract um, for most UTIs. So most women have heard of bacteria called E. coli. Uh, that's the most common cause for urinary tract infections. Um, and they come from the GI tract and they sort of colonize the skin um, around the um, perineum uh, between the anal opening and the vaginal opening. And then when the vagina lacks estrogen, uh, the, the vagina actually becomes a good reservoir for bacteria that are able to cause urinary tract infections. Um, and so in postmenopausal women, um, I always make sure that, you know, we're replacing estrogen in the vagina that helps to foster a healthy vaginal microbiome, which is very protective against getting UTIs. Um, and so how if, would you do that? Like, what, what is your recommendations for you know, introducing or reintroducing, I should say, estrogen into the vagina? So we use a cream. We call it topical estrogen. Um, it comes in a cream form. It comes as a tablet. Um, and you essentially apply it in the vagina. You can do it with a fingertip or with an applicator. You can, you can do it with a swab. Um, as long, it doesn't matter how, as long as it gets in there. Sure. Um, and it's not, and so it's not systemic hormone replacement therapy. Um, it doesn't, uh, raise blood levels of estrogen back to premenopausal levels as it would if you took like oral estrogen pills, or if you used a transdermal patch, those are forms of hormone replacement therapy. Um, when you use local estrogen, um, just in the vagina, uh, that um, is what we call topical estrogen therapy, and um, it, it, it doesn't carry the same uh, risks as hormone replacement does. So it's extremely safe, um, and it's a very important um, tool that we have to help prevent UTIs in um, postmenopausal women. And so what about, I, I'd always heard, because I actually used to get UTIs quite frequently, you know, pre, when I still had my period, you know, premenopause or perimenopause, and I'd always heard that you should avoid after intercourse. Is that something that you recommend too, even in um, midlife and postmenopause? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, studies uh, don't really corroborate that um, when they've actually like looked at whether um, urinating after sexual activity um, helps to prevent UTIs. Um, wow, it's, I'm it's, so disappointed. <laughs> I know. Well, it's not, you know, I'll tell Maybe you Maybe it's a placebo it's not, effect. I feel like it makes a difference, but I guess it doesn't. That's so fascinating. You know what? I agree with you. I think it does make a difference. Um, you know, they just haven't been able to establish that um, when they look at like two groups of patients who do and who don't. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's absolutely no, you know, harm in urinating after sex and it might help. Um, and you know, most people are, you know, going into the bathroom at some point anyway. Um, and so, you know, I think it makes absolute sense to urinate after I certainly have had patients who have said that, you know, that that's made a difference, um, in them getting UTIs, um, one thing, you know, postcoital UTIs are extremely common in women and, you know, so much more common than, than women think. Um, and 
one thing that's very helpful is something called postcoital prophylaxis, um, where you take just one pill of an antibiotic immediately after um, sex. That's extremely effective in um, preventing UTIs um, in uh, sexually active women. Um, so that's something that, you know, if we can establish that pattern that the UTIs are definitely happening, happening after um, sexual activity, um, you know, I certainly uh, favor that approach. Okay, so that's really cool. So I'm curious. I mean, UTIs are so, so annoying and frustrating and just <laughs> painful and uncomfortable, but they really uh, are. So they're hard to ignore, but do they cause any damage besides just like making you insane? Are they so bad? Are they bad question. for your bladder? Are they bad? They, <laughs> they actually do. So do they cause permanent damage to your bladder? No, but you know, not, not usually, but they do, you know, the, the process of, of having an infection, um, it does cause, you know, basically acute injury to your bladder. So, you know, your bladder, the way your bladder defends itself, uh, when you get a urinary tract infection is by sort of shedding the lining and shedding the cells, which are infected. Um, and so what happens is, um, you have all of these inflammatory mediators and, um, uh, nerves which get upregulated, and um, and then you have um, healing factors which basically come to heal the repaired, the injured tissue. Um, and so some women you'll see have like symptoms of the inflammation even after the infection is gone. Um, and and in fact, estrogen. Um, there are some studies that show that estrogen um, is actually important in facilitating that healing process. Um, so your bladder is getting injured, um, but then it's very quickly trying to heal itself. And usually, you know, you don't sustain prolonged, um, injury from, from urinary tract infections. And sometimes of course, you know, people, it's only a small percentage of people, but, um, people who end up getting infections that go up to the kidney, um, if you have recurrent episodes of kidney infections, that certainly can cause, um, scarring in the kidney. So you want to avoid that. Okay. All right. So we're definitely working hard uh, to avoid UTIs. What it, we, we hear also a lot about kind of homeopathic remedies, like, you know, drinking a lot of water to make sure that you're flushing out your systems and stuff like cranberry juice. Is that an old wives tale or is that helpful? So drinking water um, is definitely helpful. Um, there was actually a study um, that showed that women who increased their fluid intake by 1.5 liters, um, you know, particularly their water intake by 1.5 liters per day uh, who were getting recurrent UTIs had uh, fewer UTIs per year when they did that. Um, so I do think that that's a, that that's a helpful strategy. Um, cranberry juice is an interesting question because the reason why we talk about cranberry and UTIs is because cranberry has an enzyme, uh, which is called PAC. And that enzyme helps to prevent bacteria from sticking to the lining of the urinary tract, which is sort of the first step of how they cause an infection. Um, and the, the issue with juice is that, you know, it may not be concentrated enough and you may not be able to drink enough to get a therapeutic level of those PACs. Um, you know, I think ocean spray ha is doing some studies on, on their brand of juice. Um, I think they may want to market, um, some kind of a, a juice product, uh, where they can say that it's beneficial for UTIs. Um, there's supplements, you know, there are supplements which are, um, good quality, high uh, PAC supplements. 
Um, the issue with supplements is that, you know, they're not regulated by the FDA. And so anyone can just put anything on a label. Um, and so if you take a supplement, you really want to use one which is third-party tested um, to ascertain that it actually has what they're saying that it has. Um, and so for UTIs, cranberry products that have 36 milligrams of PACs um, are beneficial. I, I certainly use that in my practice um, where I have patients take um, a, a product either once or twice a day um, as a part of a UTI prevention strategy. Okay, cool. And is that over the counter? Or is that something you have to prescribe? So the ones that I use are, they're, they're over the counter because they're essentially, yeah, like um, cranberry supplements. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they, they're over the counter, um, but I've sort of like vetted um, which ones I think are high quality. Okay. And if, I would love it if you could share those with us or pass them sure. along to me afterwards because I, I want to put those in the show notes. People always want resources. Yeah. So the ones that I typically recommend are Elora. Um they, uh, I've been using their product in my practice, um, for about, I would say five or six years. Um, and then the other brand, um, which has a high quality PAC, um, uh, supplement is Utiva. Um, so those are really the two brands that I, um, I recommend. And, you know, I have patients who, you, you know, will come in and there's, they'll say, I'm using, you know, this, Whole Foods brand or whatever it is. And, you know, since I've been using it, you know, I haven't been getting UTIs. And, you know, that that brand that they're using may be perfectly good. Um, I just don't know, you gotcha. know, because unless, you know, I'm testing it in a lab, I, I have no idea. Um, and so the, the, it doesn't mean that the brands that I recommend are the only good brands. They're just brands that I trust based on, you know, the sort of companies, um, the rigor that they're using in um, the product that they're putting forward. Okay, terrific. All right, so I um, we're going to move on, even though I'm fascinated with UTIs, since I feel like <laughs> I'm like a mini expert. So I really appreciate all of this new uh, information. Thank you. All right, <laughs> moving on to number th three, the third complaint: overactive bladder. So every woman who's listening right now is probably at some point thought like I have overactive bladder. So what can you actually start by defining that for us? Like when should we be hitting the panic button? Like what's normal? <laughs> What's normal and um, what should we be worried about? Okay, so let's see. So overactive bladder is basically um, it's a it's a syndrome uh, which where where you experience symptoms of urinary frequency, urgency, uh, and nocturia, which means waking up at night to urinate. Um, and so frequency. So if you are urinating more often than once every you know, three hours, um, that's considered frequent. So if you're going every two hours, every one hour, then, um, then you have frequency that that's pretty often. And of course, you know, that's related to how much you drink. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, well, after I have my morning coffee, you know, I pee two or three times. And then for the rest of the day, you know, I go every three to four hours and, um, and, and that's pretty normal actually. Um, urgency, uh, is is the the feeling of of being unable to um, make it to the bathroom? Like you you feel a strong sense of urgency uh, to urinate, um, and you feel like if you don't get to that bathroom quickly, it might leak out uh, before you get there. And the classic example of that is you know if you um, you know you have to you're coming home from work. 
Um, you know, you have to go to the bathroom. You figure you're, you'll just go as soon as you walk in the door. And then, you know, you're putting your key in the door and the, the urgency intensifies and it actually starts to dribble out before you, you sit on the toilet. Um, and so that's called urge incontinence. And so when urgency, when urge incontinence is happening um, and you're actually leaking, um, that is definitely when, you know, it is um, a, a bad problem. Um, and, you know, you should certainly be seeing a urologist. Um, and nocturia is when you wake up at night to urinate. And, and that usually goes along with frequency um, because your daytime, you know, however much your bladder is sort of holding during the day is, is reflected at night. Um, and, and frequency and nocturia can be very bothersome, even if there's no leakage of urine. Um, you know, the, the sort of like distraction and annoyance of constantly have to, having to think about the bathroom, um, is very distressing for a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, we, we have a range of sort of options for overactive bladder symptoms, um, which can be like behavioral therapy, fluid modification, um, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy, like we talked about for, um, Stress incontinence can also be helpful for um, overactive bladder and urge incontinence um, because you can actually use your pelvic floor muscles to help you either defer the urge to urinate or help you hold it when you have that strong urge and you feel like you're not going to make it to the bathroom. Um, and then we have medications which help to um, relax the bladder and um, allow it to store urine more comfortably. Um, as you mentioned, we have Botox injections, uh, which help to also relax the bladder muscle. Um, and then we have uh, various types of nerve stimulation that help to sort of um, calm the, the signals from the bladder that you constantly have to pee. Okay, I'm like, like I'm. I, it's so funny that you're saying relax the bladder because, like, frankly, sometimes I wish my bladder were more uptight. I'm like, we are like, <laughs> this is like serious, you know. We need to be paying yeah. attention here, right? We need to make sure we're focused on doing our job, you know. I don't want a relaxed bladder, <laughs> but well, when I say relax the bladder, I'm talking about uh, relax the bladder muscle so yes. that it's not like squeezing and telling you, I want to pee, I want to pee. <laughs> I got it. I love it. No, this is good. I'm getting educated. This is really smart. So um, training, I get, you know, it sounds like you're working on other muscles or maybe practicing um, training your bladder to go longer and longer. Um, and physical therapy we covered at the beginning. So talk to me a little bit about medications. Are these over the counter? Is this prescription? Are there side effects? Do you have to take them forever? What does that look like as a solution? So medications um, are not over the counter. They are prescription. Um, and there are two types of medications. Um, the first type, uh, that general group, they're called anticholinergics. Um, and they, they basically help the bladder uh, to store urine more comfortably. Um, and they do have side effects like uh, dry mouth, constipation, um, there are some um, emerging data about um, risk for dementia in patients who take the overactive, you know, the anticholinergic um, bladder medications for long periods of time. So, um, so, so yeah, so they're not, so they, they actually work pretty well, but, you know, it is a concern in terms of how long you're going to be on them for. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll use medication for, you know, six months or a year while um, a patient is doing bladder retraining or pelvic floor physical therapy. 
um, and then, you know, we'll try to uh, wean it off. Um, sometimes women also have like other problems that are contributing to their overactive bladder, for example, like recurrent UTIs or, um, you know, uh, uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So if there are any sort of underlying causes, um, we try to address those. And then, you know, if there are side effects with medication, um, which for many people there are, the, the, the dropout rate for taking medication is, is pretty high. Um, then we start moving on to other non-medication therapies, um, like Botox. And, you know, there's, I should say there's another type of medication, um, which is called Mirbetric, um, which is not an anticholinergic, um, and doesn't carry that same side effect profile. Um, it's, it's, you know, I think better tolerated. Um, and so I usually will try to start with that if we're using medication, but, um, it, it becomes an issue of insurance coverage. Sure. Um, and of course, you know, the insurance companies um, want to cover only the cheapest, um, oldest medications that have the worst side effects. Um, and, you know, so, so that becomes an issue uh, as far as, you know, what we can prescribe. Those darn insurance companies. Uh, <laughs> yes. So tell me a little bit more about the uh, the constellation. You know where the you had said that in menopause there's this. I'm going to mispronounce it. Geno- Genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Okay, that is a mouthful. So that doesn't sound like fun at all. <laughs> How- yeah, and you know it, it it it's extremely underdiagnosed. And um, um, what happens is you know the bladder, the pelvic floor. Um, the urethra and the vagina are all estrogen sensitive. Um, And so as women um, sort of progress further into menopause and the tissue, um, you know, it it lacks estrogen for a longer and longer period of time, you get sort of thinning of the vaginal tissue. Um, Like we talked about for recurrent UTIs, you sort of, you, you then lose this, your nice healthy vaginal microbiome. You then become more prone to urinary tract infections. Um, the urethra and the bladder start to feel more irritated as a result of the, the lack of estrogen um, and the, the, the collagen. When you lose estrogen, your collagen also starts to degrade. So you start to lose collagen around your urethra. You may leak more easily. Um, and, you know, it, it, so it's, a, it's sort of this constellation of um, irritative urinary and vaginal symptoms. And it, it only, it only got a name in, uh, in 2014, um, you know, which is, which is just crazy because, you know, if you think about, um, men who've had issues as a result of low testosterone, you know, it's like they're, they're surrounded by five doctors and, you know, everybody's ordering tests and, you know, we need to get like penile Dopplers now. (laughs) This is an emergency. This thing is not working. And, um, right. And women have been suffering with, you know, vaginal dryness and very painful intercourse, urinary tract infections, um, leaking urine, um, overactive bladder symptoms. Uh, a lot of women, you know, will say that it's just this sort of, you know, general awareness of their bladder and urethra and, and vagina, um, that they, that, you know, they never used to have. Um, and so, it's, it's interesting because so many women, um, come in and, you know, they're sort of like, no one can figure out what's going on with me. And, um, and, you know, all of these problems that they're describing really all sort of link back to one thing. 
Um, and, and sometimes what happens is they have actually been prescribed estrogen cream or, you know, what we talked about, topical estrogen um, by another doctor, but they but they they didn't use it because, you know, the package insert, it was terribly frightening because they, they the FDA requires the same um, warnings as they do for estrogen that's used for hormone replacement therapy. So, like, you get this medication and you open it and it's like, may cause heart attack, stroke, dementia, uterine cancer, breast cancer. And so, you know, like the Or it may solve like, your problems, right? I mean, when right. you're talking, you know, when you're talking, when you're outlining all of the things that um, you just shared that, that often go wrong with, with uh, when estrogen declines and the thinning of these, these tissues. I mean, I can't understand why this isn't, you know, like a four alarm fire. I mean, everyone should know <laughs> that they need to, to be worried in, about these things. In my things. office, it is. Um, but yeah, it, it, it goes very under-recognized. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there is more awareness of it now among um, doctors. Um, you know, I think women are increasingly proactive um, about their health. And, um, and I think, you know, part of the issue was that um, when the Women's Health Initiative study, uh, when those results first came out in 2002, um, where, you know, uh, increased risk for thromboembolic events and cancers, um, seem to happen from, um, seem to happen in women who are on hormone replacement therapy. Um, everyone became really afraid of estrogen. Um, and so, you know, women were going around with these symptoms and they're being, you know, given bladder antispasmodics or, you know, medications that sort of numb the bladder. They're being given a lot of different things to sort of um, treat the symptoms, but not treat the underlying problem. And, you know, as we discussed, using the cream um, in the vaginal area, it's extremely safe and um, and very effective, you know, for this issue. What about um, oral estrogen? Do you recommend that if, like, uh, if cancer is not a risk or a concern? Because that's, wouldn't that be effective as well? Uh, so actually, you know, interestingly for genitourinary syndrome of menopause, um, systemic hormone replacement therapy is not as effective as um, just sort of, you know, going right where the money is and, and putting the cream um, directly on the tissue. Um, so, you know, so oral estrogen or transdermal estrogen um, for systemic hormone replacement therapy is appropriate in um, women who are within 10 years of menopause, um, you know, who, who don't have certain risk factors, you know, in terms of like breast cancer history and, um, and um, cardiovascular history. And that can really help with um, things like sleep quality and um, mood swings, um, the hot flashes, it can be protective. You know, actually estrogen when given early on can be protective for osteoporosis um, and brain function. So um, those are good reasons, but, you know, different reasons from uh, genitourinary syndrome of, menop of menopause. Um, and for that, the, the cream actually works best. Uh, and that that sounds you know very simple too. There's so many wonderful it places is. that that provide that. This is so fascinating. I I have learned so much about my own body since I've launched this podcast. I feel like I've gotten. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I have learned so much about issues that are plaguing women in midlife and myself from having conversations with you and other doctors who've been on the show. I'm telling you, this is something that I really feel like flies under the radar in terms of. Um, 
my own healthcare, but even in the conversations I have with friends, because we spend right. a lot of time talking about, you know, skincare and retinol, and everyone wants to talk about like a laser treatment they did or, you know, their yeah. favorite sunblock. But none of my friends are talking about bladder issues. Do you like why? I mean, people are talking yeah. to you about it because you're a urologist, but do you, <laughs> <laughs> why aren't more women having these conversations? You know, I, 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 I it's it it is so important um, that these issues um, you know come to the forefront of of people's conversations um, and that women seek a, appropriate medical um, care for you know debilitating problems like urinary incontinence and I think that um, it's such a taboo topic um, for so many women especially. Um, you know, when it comes to like stress incontinence after um, childbirth, you know, leaking urine, it's it's such an embarrassing problem to have. Um, and, you know, women are... But it's you know, common, expect- right? But didn't you share that it's common? It's, yeah, like one third of women um, after um, uh, pregnancy and childbirth um, suffer from stress incontinence. So it, it's extremely common. Um, and, you know, a lot of women feel that, you know, their what happens to their body when they have a baby that, you know, it's, it's, it's not as important as like focusing on the baby, making everyone happy, you know, having um, this sort of picture of, um, of perfect life. And, you know, stress incontinence doesn't fit into that picture. Um, and, you know, I think it's the expectation, especially in our culture that, you know, we're supposed to just like bounce back after we've had a baby and, um, and that, you know, our body just springs back to, um, where we were at, um, you know, before we were pregnant. Um, there's just a huge pressure on women to, you know, act like, you know, everything's perfect and, um, everyone's happy. Um, and so, you know, I think it gets, it, it gets swept under the rug. Um, I think that and, happens you know, with aging also, Anjali, you think about the fact that, you know, people are now aging like JLo and they look amazing and, and people, I think there's a fear of aging in our culture. Like people don't want to admit they're getting old. And so all of a sudden, if you have like old people problems, like, yeah, you know, it's true. And, you know, when people come into the office and they've had, you know, episodes of urge incontinence um, or they're having, you know, uh, stress incontinence or overactive bladder symptoms, it is, you know, a, a something people often say, you know, I, I'm not going to be in diapers like an 80 year old, am I? You know, <laughs> um, so you're right. It, you know, it is it is partially a fear of um, of aging and all the physical decline that that comes with that. Um, but I think that, you know, particularly for women, like it's interesting to me because I think certainly, um, if a man were to develop urge incontinence or, you know, men develop problems from, um, you know, enlarged prostate, you know, they develop problems with urination from that. Um, and you know, they don't seem to have a problem going to see a urologist, um, and, and getting it taken care of, um, in the best way that they can. And I feel like, you know, when, when women are having these issues, um, you know, first of all, you know, like you said, most women don't even know that there are, that urologists take care of, um, female bladder issues, uh, number one, and that there are actually female urologists, um, who they probably would feel, uh, more comfortable with. A lot of women, um, speak to their gynecologist as sort of their first line. 
And, um, and then, you know, if their gynecologist refers them to a urologist, then that's great. Um, but if their gynecologist doesn't refer them, then they sort of think that, okay, well, there's nothing yeah. real, n- nothing more to be done here. You All know, right. well, we're changing that. We're, we're totally changing that conversation. I, this has been so fascinating. <laughs> I hope so. We're, we're nearing the end of our time here, but I do not let, want to let you go without talking about organ prolapse, because I still remember the very first time I learned about it. And I was shocked. I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, can you please quickly walk us through what it is? And most importantly, how do we prevent this? <laughs> sure. Um, so pelvic organ prolapse is basically when the bladder, the uterus, um, or the rectum, uh, essentially, uh, lose the support that keep those organs nice and sort of high in the pelvis. Um, and you have connective tissue and ligaments, um, surrounding your bladder, your urethra, your vagina, your rectum, Um, that are essentially keeping those organs in place because those are functional organs. Like when you have a bowel movement, um, you bear down. And when you bear down, your, your rectum doesn't, you know, fall out of your body. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for that. (laughs) Um, um, and so, uh, with, you know, pregnancy, childbirth, some people, um, you know, they have like genetic collagen defects. Um, smokers have very poor collagen, uh, collagen quality. Um, it can be in athletes who are, you know, bearing down a lot, um, and putting a lot of pressure on their pelvis. Um, if those, if that connective tissue and those ligaments, um, become stretched out or weak, uh, your pelvic organs essentially start to sag and the space that they can sag down into is the vaginal canal. So, you know, women will, will perceive like a sensation of a bulge in their vagina. Um, and you know, if it's coming from the front, it may be the bladder. If it's coming from the top, it may be the uterus. And if it's coming from the back wall, it may be the, the rectum. Um, and to prevent pelvic organ prolapse, I think it's really important, um, to maintain like excellent core and, um, pelvic floor strength. So like during pregnancy, um, you want to be doing your prenatal Pilates. Um, You can do pelvic floor physical therapy while you're pregnant. Um, Every Mother um, is an app which has amazing like at-home regimens um, for core strength and also for I need to stop you right now because I did none of those things. (laughs) And I have three (laughs) kids and they are 20, 18, and 14. What can I do now? I, I need an emergency intervention because I do not want that to happen. For anyone who did not do prenatal Pilates and we're in our 50s, what do you recommend? So you can, so Pilates even now is still really helpful. Um, when you do Pilates, um, you, you have this sort of like zipping up sensation of your transversalis and elevation of your pelvic floor. And, um, and that is very protective. So I still recommend, um, doing Pilates, um, there, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy, um, of course is very effective in, um, maintaining pelvic floor strength and keeping those organs, uh, where they are and preventing them from, from falling out. But chances are, if you are, you know, uh, uh, unless you already have some prolapse, uh, that you, that you don't want to get worse. Um, if you know, you're, you're this far out into having kids, 
um, it's unlikely you're going to just develop prolapse um, later on in your life. Oh, good. Okay. So I've dodged that. (laughs) I've dodged that bullet. Thank goodness. This has been so absolutely wonderful. I could keep talking to you, but our time is wrapping up. Um, I want to ask you two things, though, before I let you go. You have given us so much information. I'm linking to all the recommendations in the show notes. Is there one uh, product or tool or resource that you really think that women should know about for managing urinary vaginal menopausal issues or, or anything that you think is relevant? Um, well, I mean, that's a, that's a very that's broad a big one. question. A- <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, I think the one tool to, to maintain urinary, you know, and, and vaginal health is a, is a good female urologist. Um, I love it. That, <laughs> that, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I can recommend that, you know, would encompass, um, you know, all of that in, in one thing. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, find a female urologist, um, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, there are male urologists who also specialize in female urology. Um, there are, you know, gynecologists who have done a fellowship in, uh, urogynecology, um, who, you know, who do the same thing. So my advice is, um, find a, a specialist, either a urologist or a urogynecologist who actually, um, you know, specializes in bladder um, and vaginal health. Uh, because a lot of women think that they should see their general gynecologist, um, who is probably a wonderful person and a wonderful doctor, um, but may not um, specialize in things like uh, urinary incontinence and uh, recurrent UTIs and pelvic organ prolapse. Great advice. So how can our listeners keep following you and your work? Um, the best way is through my website. Um, my website is www.womensurologynewyork.com. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote all the content about all of these conditions uh, that we talked about and the um, treatment options, um, all the content on my website was uh, written by me, uh, not by, you know, a medical writer or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, I give my sort of honest opinion about the, the data, the risks and benefits. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly doing things like blog posts on, you know, things like herbal medications for overactive bladder and things like that. Um, so that would be the best way. I, I actually always feel like upset that like more people don't, you know, they look at my website to get the phone number of the office and things like that. And, you know, whenever I talk about treatments with patients, I'm like, oh, did you read my website? And, you know, they're like, no. All right, well, we're, cha- <laughs> we're changing that as well. because I'm going to link to those resources in the show notes. Dr. Angelis Kumar, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk with you. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. If you enjoyed this week's show, please head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to review the show, because reviews help us grow. And share this show with your friends who complain about their tiny bladders. You know, the ones who always need the aisle seat on the airplane or at the movies. They are going to thank you. Join me next week when we dive into midlife funny moments, with comic Carol Montgomery, creator of the Showtime comedy special, Funny Women of a Certain Age. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.